the painted sunset Take away the blue lagoon What a night seems oh so scenic Maybe sinning much too soon Take away the sense of drama Take away the puppet play What a night seems oh so scenic Maybe sinning Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, August 13th, 2023. My name is James Marino and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist and historian with a number of books. His new book... Brain Teasers for Broadway Geniuses is now available for pre-order on Amazon. Peter has columns at Masterworks, Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Hello, Peter. Hi. Hello. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael's a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You could see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Hello, Michael. Hello. Peter, I, uh, I, I meant to ask you before, and I, I don't mean to stalk you. Uh-huh. But uh, I saw that on Facebook you had posted that you were looking for things to see in Philadelphia. Yeah. Uh, well, are you going or or have you already sure. gone? No. Um, what it is is um, my girlfriend Linda has a client in Yardley, Pennsylvania, and they're doing uh-huh. a book signing. And so we mm-hmm. thought we'd uh, go to the book signing. But I also wanted to see what was playing. So, um, But nothing seems to be playing of any uh, interest. Uh, it's just a little too early because we're talking about Labor Day weekend. Um, it, a lot of exciting things are coming up in Philadelphia, but um, not that weekend. So I guess I'll have to postpone my trip and we will go uh, to see shows, but not to see the book signing <laughs> okay so uh you know if you're in the philadelphia area and i'm looking at you tim tim's on Levy, uh you know right. <laughs> let let peter know what is happening and perhaps you could uh stage your uh uh put a reading That's up right peter. <laughs> put a reading up for him so he can see something that'd be great <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, I want to do some uh, maintenance here for Broadway Radio itself. Uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, it, it's it's absolutely shocking. Our little project here uh, has been ongoing for for so many years. Uh, I'm, I, I I can't even remember when we started. When was it like two thousand nine, something like really? that? Yeah, we we just passed three thousand episodes. Wow. No kidding. My Three thousand episodes yeah. on Broadway Radio. Um really? yeah, we have had wow. uh let's see mm-hmm. uh just about a wow. thousand this week on Broadways. Uh just about two thousand uh you know, today on Broadways and things like that. And I mean, this wasn't planned, but like this week, Jan Simpson's all the drama, uh uh, where she talked to Rob Fisher about Fiorello, the 1960 Pulitzer Prize winner, is now right, available yeah, to the general yeah. public. So the public can see that mm-hmm. this week. Lauren Clash Schneider had three episodes of Class Notes this past week. Uh, Matt is in New York City, and he's doing his travelogue, and his travelogue is exclusive, exclusively available <laughs> on Patreon, patreon.com slash Radio. And Ashley Steves uh, has left today on Broadway, but has not left Broadway radio as she has had not one, but two special episodes this week where she uh, talks with uh, James uh, I. James, the Pulitzer Prize winning author of Fat Ham. And also she talked with uh, Tamara uh, Tamakili, who is starring in Cadrice uh, uh, Jones' Flex at Lincoln Center. At the Mitzi Newhouse. Did you guys see Flex? I don't know if we talked about yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it might have been that week that Matt took over and I was out. So, uh, you know, check out what's going on at Broadway Radio at broadwayradio.com. We have tons and tons of stuff there for you. First up in our review section, Peter and Michael uh, got a chance to see the new play, The Shark is Broken, which is... Uh, 
the behind the scenes of the making of the Jaws film. So, Peter, why don't you get us started on this? Well, Ian Shaw, uh, who co-wrote the play, uh, stars in it as well. And he has received rave reviews from both uh, the critics and people I've talked to. I was saying, my God, he really has his father down pat. Isn't he wonderful playing Robert Shaw, who, of course, was in the movie Jaws, uh, which is what this play is about, uh, what's happening when the shark is broken and these people have downtime and now that they have downtime well yeah, they're going to be speaking more to each other more than they expected to that includes of course Richard Dreyfus and also um, Roy Scheider who um, the three main people who are in the film um, so everybody is so impressed with Ian Shaw and, uh, and as well they should be he's terrific yes he does look like his father in those days um, he acts like his father superbly and that all that is quite wonderful I am not putting him down for a second, but good Lord, Alex Brightman as Richard Dreyfus. <laughs> yeah. Whoa! Every intonation, every move is perfection. You don't realize, well, at least I haven't, that Richard Dreyfus has so many uh, mannerisms and tics and distinctive features until you see Alex Brightman replicate them. <laughs> amazing to me really amazing um a fine 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 performance yes we certainly admired him in beetlejuice and we certainly admired him in school of rock <clears throat> and that, not not to take away from those performances but i can't begin to think how many man hours he spent watching every richard dreyfus performance because he really does uh, him not just justice, but supreme justice. So um, that was the real power of the play for me, which I don't think is so hot. Um, it's amiable. It's fine. Uh, nothing really, really, really surprises you. You know, there's going to be conflict. And uh, the Scheider character really comes in to um, uh, be the mediator between these two who do get into a scuffle. So, um, uh, but uh, it, 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 it never catches fire for me, um, maybe because that's the round the wall. Water, I don't know, but the, it never it never really um, amounts to very very much. I'm sorry to say, but it is worth seeing for Richard Dreyfuss' performance uh, uh, to be um, <laughs> for Richie. You see, yeah. you said Richard Dreyfuss' performance right. because he's so much like. Him. <laughs> yeah, uh, as as Freud says, there are no such things as Freudian slips. Anyway, um, but. Um, uh, as the uh, finicky historian that I am, I was very surprised at the line in the play where he talks about 1960, well, he doesn't say 1968, but he talks about seeing, um, a play that was done in 68. I don't want to give away the title, but, um, he talks about that's what made him want to be an actor. But, um, he appears, um, oh, so slightly in the movie of The Graduate, which was released in 67. So anyway, I find that a bit of a flaw, but, um, the big flaw, of course, is that, um, the play isn't better than it is still, still to see Alex Brightman be capable of something you would have never believed anybody to be as capable of is really something worth seeing. All right. So, uh, Michael, what did you think? Well, first of all, I completely agree about Alex Brightman. I think he's a brilliantly talented person. And, um, we discussed recently that, uh, I saw him, as part of that incredible cast of Spamalot in D.C. a few months ago, and uh, he will not be continuing uh, when it comes to Broadway, presumably because of The Shark is Broken. Um, but uh, so I I was upset. Uh, you know, I was disappointed that I won't get to see him again in that. But that's OK, because he's so. He's so, so great in this. Uh, I, I agree with every word Peter said about his replication of all the tics and the mannerisms. And uh, one one wonders, I mean, uh, presumably this play is um, obviously it's based in truth as to all the time that these three actors had to kill uh, on the set because the shark uh, kept breaking down, or rather the three sharks. They had three of them and, and uh, still they uh, were having trouble where they couldn't film scenes because none of them were working uh you know at certain points um so um they have to fill the space with something and a, a lot of it is i i think um i can't imagine um anyone who n has never seen jaws and knew absolutely nothing about it i would think they would be bored to tears by this because so much of it requires um 
a backstory uh, that you know the backstory of the film or at least the major points of it and the major plot of it and and and, and the the players involved including steven spielberg um who uh, appears as a voice in this uh play um so i i, I you know i i suppose that it's doubtful that Richard Dreyfus was quite so neurotic <laughs> on on the set uh, as he's portrayed here, but it is very, very, very entertaining as played by Alex. And so, uh, you know, I, I I don't think we can object to that. Uh, I would also say um, to mention the third person in the cast, that Colin Donnell. Uh, the interesting thing for me there is that when he had his glasses off, he didn't look much like Roy Scheider at all. And as soon as he put them on, he looked exactly like him. Uh, so <laughs> I thought that was kind of weird, um, uh, but also nice. And I think all three of them deserve credit for uh, the time they put in trying to replicate these people. Uh, I, I think it's a very, very, very light uh thing to to hang a play on it didn't this start in in england as a fringe show sort of yeah yeah yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. i mean it was you know it was probably they never initially probably had broadway in their headlights um but it, you know people seem to be really enjoying it because of the of the backstory of of the movie uh and i um what did I think? Oh, uh, there's uh, uh, as a friend of mine uh, and colleague of mine, Matt Koplick mentioned, this is one of those plays that uh, relies on the audience uh, knowing more than the actors, the characters uh, for the humor, which is also true of um, Back to the Future, you know, which we'll get to in a moment. But um, here, for example, there's a scene where uh, the three of them are sitting around talking and uh, Richard Dreyfus mentions that Stephen has discussed an upcoming project with him. And it's about uh, it's about aliens from space mm -hmm. and and of course the audience goes oh no you know and then uh, <laughs> and then and then but then um ian shaw as, as his father robert says uh something like oh that's crazy well that's a crazy idea what's next dinosaurs and the audience uh. goes goes hysterical <laughs> but the thing is that's not I mean, it's funny because of what we know, but it's not really funny because what's odd about making a movie about aliens or dinosaurs? Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, there had been movies about both of those things sure. before yeah. uh, before Jurassic Park and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. So it's really not a very good line. It just relies on that. And I had a funny thought. You know what would have absolutely brought the house down? <laughs> Maybe I should write to them and, and, and suggest sure. they change this line. If he said, what's next? A remake of West Side Story? <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, I enjoyed it uh, despite all of the above. My, my friend uh, who I went with, who is a 100% Jaws freak, enjoyed it even oh. more than I did. Yes. Wow. Uh, but so those are the issues with it, as, as, I, as I can explain them. If you think those issues will bother you, then you might uh, be bothered. But if not, then you're going to have a, a really, really great time. So the shark is broken is playing at the golden, uh, through November 19th, uh, 2023 right now. Um, it, uh, I, I wonder if, if the commercial viability of this is something that would have been greater if it had been done many years ago when yeah. Jaws was, you know, in the vernacular of, of, uh, a, you know our, our our you know our current events and topics when everybody you know as soon as jaws came out you know everybody mm -hmm. every news program at 5 p.m. or 6 p.m. was like there was a shark sighting sighting at the beach when the, that had happened for years and years and years but now it became you know something everybody was aware of well you know it it might have been more so even more so uh years ago but i, I it seems to me that that movie is really a, a perennial classic and uh they show it all the time i've seen screenings of it uh at beaches <laughs> like really? on the boardwalk yes Whoa. and I, I saw one in as in asbury park <laughs> a few years wow. ago and also um 
uh, this summer in particular, there had there have been a number of shark sightings, yeah. uh, like uh, and like sometimes like within five feet of the shore, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. you know, in in Cape Cod and places like that. Uh, and said so whenever that happens, of course, uh, the movie's brought up again, and and people think about it. And and also, I, I just think it's something that i get the impression that that everyone has it on home video and and watches it a lot so uh, that's the thing home video you know i mean really since the video revolution all these things are uh, possibilities um so i agree with that entirely uh i'm amazed that they would show jaws at a beach i mean i've always heard that airlines um, you yeah. know, movies never mm-hmm. show movies that have anything to do right. with the airline disaster. So I'm amazed that um, they would do uh, <laughs> Jaws at the Beach. It is kind of, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. We all have our values anyway. All right. So that is The Shark is Broken at the John Golden Theater. As we mentioned, it's playing through November 19th. And we'll have a link to that in the show notes. So from sharks to bulls. Peter, you got over to Second Stage Theater's uh, McGinn Castle Theater up on the Upper West Side on 76th Street to see Toros. So tell us about this. <laughs> yeah, I, I saw it last Sunday, and here it is Sunday, and I've forgotten most of it. Uh, it is not a play that has any real power because the plot is non-existent, and uh, the only thing I do remember is the actors were superb with the dialogue. So the dialogue's good, but nothing much happens. Now, you might say, well, considering what happens with the car, something does happen, and it is tragic, and you don't really want to see what happens with the car. But um, but still, um, that's something that comes out of nowhere and has nothing to do really with what's going on so anyway let me just praise the actors um Juan Castano as Juan by the way um is very good as a guy who's um in his um looks like a yeah it is a garage um and he's turned it into a studio he wants to be a disc jockey he um is certainly crazy about music and um and nothing comes of that his uh, friend a long-term friend Toro that's his name and nickname. Um, wonderfully played by Abuka Ali uh, comes in and they have issues. And of course, eventually they squabble. You can't really say fight. It's more of a squabble. Anyway, um, also coming in is um, a woman who um, may get involved with them, may not. Um, her name is Andrea in the play. She's played an act by an actress simply known as B, lowercase B. That's it. One letter. Um, but, uh, again, she's very good. Now, the odd thing to me, and I guess we all need money, uh, Frank Wood, the Tony winner for Sideman, is playing mm-hmm. a dog for most of the play. A dog. <laughs> um, a golden retriever, we're told. And, you know, he has to roll around and get on his back and do things like that. And he's very good as a dog, but I'm very surprised that, um, he'd be interested in this part. Granted, he comes back later as a different character. Um, but, um, but, you know, really it's, it's, I guess it's a mood piece. I guess it's a, a wonderful vehicle for actors, but I won't be surprised if anybody who sees it, um, feels the way I do that, um, that a day later you won't even remember what, what went on because so little went on. So fine acting, um, very deficient play when it comes to conflict. So we have two plays where nothing happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah, ain't that the truth? Yeah. All right. Is the third one going to be Seinfeld the musical? <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget we have that, and <laughs> that has this problem. Well, too. in Seinfeld, a lot happens. It's just that it doesn't yeah, amount right. to anything. <laughs> it's famously called the uh, show about the, nothing. The yeah. TV show about nothing. Right. <laughs> All right. So, uh, Toros at the Second Stage Theaters, McGinn Castle, uh, Castle Theater on Broadway at 76th through August 13th, which is today. today. So, yeah. if you haven't seen it, you haven't seen it. All right. Uh, all right. So, Michael, Peter, uh, last week talked about Back to the Future of the Musical at the Winter Garden Theater, and you've gotten a chance to see it this week. So, tell us about it. Well, I would say, first of all, I enjoyed it much more than I expected to would have enjoyed it even more if the sound amplification level had been dialed down from about 12 to maybe like six or seven. I really, really, really hate it. 
that so many shows do that. It doesn't bring the audience into the show. It repels them as far as I'm concerned. How can you respond to anything when everything is being screamed at you and and the vocals, uh, you know, are amplified so loud that they sound like they're distorted sometimes? I I just don't get it. And and I'm always thankful when I see and hear a show that does not do that. Uh, So uh, but this is not one of those shows. And if that bothers you as much as it bothers me, you're going to have an issue with it. I'm telling you now. Um, So with that out of the way, um, uh, my friend and I agreed uh, that the second act of this show is far superior to the first, which is kind of unusual. Um, Yeah. Uh, I had heard that the biggest downfall of the show was that the score is really not very good. I would say that's true of several of the songs um, that are very superfluous and or not well written and could have easily been excised. Um, There are many, many songs in this show, uh, and they didn't need so many. Um, Which brings me to another point, uh, tangentially. Um, When Harry Potter opened on Broadway, uh, we discussed this, the fact that it was probably the first example of a property like that being uh, brought to Broadway and not musicalized. Um, and that was very unusual. And obviously that show did quite well. Uh, I remember at the time we, uh, we mentioned that it, it, if King Kong had taken the same route, that that might have been much more successful because that score was ridiculous and uh and that whole property did not work as a musical so i would have thought that maybe harry potter proved to people who are uh, intent on bringing movies to broadway uh, that they don't have to musicalize them necessarily um but um uh, they I don't know if they ignored that or they just didn't even think of it. Um, of course, if you if you do make it a musical, then there are all kinds of other subsidiary rights that you get, and uh, you know, and and and, and it, I suppose it uh, it makes it more of your own piece than than if you just take the screenplay and put it on stage. Um, so uh, whatever their their motivation. Um, they did decide to make this a musical and I, and I think it works better than I thought it would. Uh, but I, I wish they hadn't felt that they had to musicalize every moment. Um, the songs go from uh, really not very good at all uh, and just time wasters to, to quite excellent. Um, I thought the worst number, one of the worst numbers uh, was the uh, beginning of Act 2, uh, which is called 21st Century, which is a song and dance number for Doc and the ensemble. And it's kind of, it's not even part of the plot. It's just sort of a divertissement. Um, there's a number in Act 1. Uh, I don't even remember the title where uh, suddenly the chorus people appear in top hat and tails Mm -hmm. because apparently like every musical has to make fun of musicals. And that absolutely had nothing to do with anything. and could have been cut and would have been much better if it had. I I can tell Peter agrees with me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But um, there were some really good songs. The uh, people have focused on uh, this song right at the beginning of act one after the opening. It's called Got No future in which marty uh played by casey likes elements the fact that his family is but is really going nowhere i mean everyone is just kind of stuck uh and they're all they just have no obviously have no nothing to look forward to uh so that was a very good song and the best song of all I thought was in act two. Uh, it's a duet between Marty and his dad, George, um, who, of course, his, his dad doesn't know that he's dead. Uh, but and it's called Put Your Mind to It. Uh, and basically, we see Marty, um, you know, giving a pep talk and, and just a motivational speech uh, in song to his dad to to really get him to um do everything that's going to ensure Marty's future to, to, to ask his um, mother to the prom and et cetera, et cetera. And that was just great, especially uh, as performed by those two. And um, that brings us to 
George McFly, played by Hugh Coles, who, um, uh, again, my friend and I agreed he is going to get a Tony nomination and he may well win it. He he does. Um, <laughs> flashing back to what we said about those actors in Jaws, he does a brilliant um, impersonation of uh, Crispin Glover in the movie. But um, it's more than that. It's just so wonderfully endearing and charming. And I think he basically almost walked away with the show. And that's something to say when, when the show also includes Roger Bart, um, who who was also very good. But I think that, um, yeah, I think that you Coles, who I was not previously familiar with, is getting all of the kudos for this one and, and really deservedly. Um what else? Uh, Casey likes is very engaging and very likable as Marty. Uh, strong singing and acting, and totally believable as a sixteen-year-old, uh, roughly a sixteen-year-old, as it was also the case when he was in Almost Famous. I'm glad that he's got a hit now because uh, I was, I thought he was great in Almost Famous, which obviously was not a success. Um, so I think he deserves a hit, and and I'm glad he's got one now. Roger Bart, I, I felt like he started out doing a Christopher Lloyd imitation and not necessarily a great one, but then he uh, goes more his own way as the show goes along. Um, he has a, a really nice song in Act 2 called For the Dreamers, which in itself is, is very touching and very nice, but it did seem like it wasn't necessarily all of, the, of a piece with the rest of the show and the rest of the performance, which is so uh, over the top and so manic. Um, he tries to make a transition into it, and he does a fairly good job of it, but I think that he and the director might have worked on that a little bit more oh here's an interesting thing um i don't know if you noticed peter but right before the show you hear the orchestra tuning up and i turned to my friend and i said i'm sure they're doing that just to prove to you that there's a live orchestra (laughs) (laughs) no i'm sure and uh fine you know because as we know live orchestras are threatened so you know so that was really great um oh uh john rando's direction i thought I didn't love because he seemed to be encouraging overacting uh, from a lot of people. Um, And some people fell prey to it worse than others. There's two, I I won't mention the actors because I just, I despised these performances. There's a woman who plays um, the woman in act one, who's, who's trying to lead a, 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 um, the mm-hmm. cause of saving the the clock mm-hmm. tower, mm-hmm. and then there's the the uh, the actor who plays the principal, uh, and he also has another role that he plays. Um, and I thought I I just couldn't stand it when they were on stage. Um, uh, maybe uh, who who knows if they came up with with that kind of egregious overacting and Rando just let it go or if Rando encouraged them to do it sure. maybe under the Never theory know. that yeah maybe under the theory that they they have so little time on stage that they had to make an impression but i i just i just really really hated that um so i think if the if the superfluous and not very good songs were cut out if the volume level was reduced uh and if the uh the supporting players could have been directed not to overact like that. This would have been a, a, a far better show. Uh, but it still is very entertaining. And I haven't even mentioned how absolutely spectacular the special effects are. Um, so um, in general, uh, there seemed to be a lot of adoration from the audience and and you may well feel the same all right so that is uh back to the future at the winter garden um we'll have a link to that in the show notes and uh we can also go back and listen to peter's review which was on last week as well so peter uh you got over to 59 east 59 to see a eulogy for roman so tell us about this well, there we are. We're all sitting there. Um, after we get a, a, a little piece of paper, not a playbill, a little piece of paper, 
telling us that we are at a memorial service and uh, what to expect at the memorial service, including refreshments at the end. There are no refreshments at the end. Um, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> I think it's the only reason Linda stayed. <laughs> anyway, um, <clears throat> so uh, it, it, out comes this actor named Brendan George, um, who uh, is eulogizing his friend Roman, who uh, has been cremated. There's a very handsome urn on the set, and he is astonishingly nervous. I don't mean as an actor. I mean as the character he's playing, uh, the best friend of uh, Roman, the best friend indeed. We are led to suspect that there was more to their friendship than um, just being best friends. No, no, that does not turn out to be the case, and for a very strange reason. I am, again, going to be very, very vague here, not to give something important away, but I will say that what's really interesting is what happens in this play happened in another play that we had hmm. earlier this new season, um, a very good play that we uh, definitely said nice things about and I'm told may have a future on Broadway. So I imagine if Brendan George, uh, who wrote the play, uh, ELG for Roman as well, I bet if he heard about this, he must have really been shaking in his boots thinking, oh, they've stolen my thunder. And here I am mentioning it. So um, to some degree, I am stealing the thunder here by pointing out vaguely that there is a similarity (laughs) with a much better play. I'll leave it at that. Um, He's a very, very nervous guy. He doesn't want to do uh, this ceremony. Uh, He has to because um, that was his best friend. And... One of the flaws is, considering what happens in the play, and I know I'm being vague, what happens in the play, there would be no reason for any of us to be there. I mean, what we assume when we get into that theater is that, all right, we are Romans' friends, um, and that's why we're there. Why else would we show up for a eulogy for somebody we didn't know? So apparently we're supposed to be Romans' friends. As time goes on, we actually see the impossibility of that. Again, being vague. I'm sorry. Um He's terrific at uh, starting, stopping, being nervous, uh, going back, uh, uh, correcting himself, uh, all this stuff. He's very, very good. And some people will find it maddening and wearing that uh, he's smiling and then he's not smiling and he starts over again. Sentences stop in the middle. Uh, He apologizes endlessly for uh, being uh, inept at what he's doing. He's never done anything like this before. And there is audience participation if you care to participate. You'll have the chance to do push-ups if you want to. (laughs) Yeah. Um, What's really very sad that happens at the beginning is that he asks people in the audience to talk about their own losses in their own life. Now, this happens right at the beginning of the play. And I thought, oh, my God, is this what's going to happen for all this time? It's an hour and 15 minutes. No intermission is that what's going to happen he's actually going to ask people in the audience to tell about their tragedies in their life with the people they've lost luckily that only happens once but still i think it's a very odd thing because of course there was a woman who was talking about her the brother she lost and whoa what a downer i mean because it starts off seeming like it's going to be a comedy there are a lot of laughs at the beginning but this certainly um derails the laughs so that's 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 um very unsettling to me and i was shocked that um that was the direction it seemed to be going it's not what else happens well um he and roman made a list of um 99 things out of 100 they didn't get to the 100th thing that they wanted to do and because they didn't do all of them uh the audience is going to uh stand in for roman and do whatever um so he asks you uh, give give me a number between 1 and 99 so somebody yells out 7 and whatever 7 is that's what happens um and that's why the push-ups happen because indeed somebody called out the number that had to do with the push-ups, I think. Um, so uh, <laughs> if, um, uh, it's it all depends on how much you can relate to um, this guy's nervousness, um, loss. I, I I found it strangely unsatisfying and i'm sorry to say that um i didn't respond to it more because um 
the guy is really working very hard. And on the surface, it seems like a good idea to um, to have this type of show that, I mean, I remember years ago, there was Grandma Sylvia's funeral, mm-hmm. uh, which was far more comic and, um, and, and outrageously comic. But um, this one doesn't quite work to me either on a serious level or on a comic level. Peter, that woman uh, in the audience, do you think that maybe she was a plant? I don't. She, she may very well have been, but I don't. Um, she, uh, If she was, um, she's a terrific actress because she was almost in tears if she wasn't in tears. Because, I mean, we have seen that before in a few oh, things. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and yeah. since they only do it once... Yeah, uh, that was making that's, me think. That's, maybe. A, that's a very good rebuttal. And I, I have to say that um, it didn't occur to me at all, which is, again, a tribute to um, what she is as an actress, if she is an actress. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, but good point. Good point. All right. So that is a eulogy for Roman at 59. East 59. It is uh, playing through September 3rd. Uh, so you still have uh, a couple weeks to get over and see it if you'd like. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Peter and Michael both got over to New World Stages to see a uh, new musical called Rock and Roll Man. So uh, let's see. Michael, why don't you start us off with this? Well, this is a bio musical of a fellow named Alan Freed, who was a famous DJ back in the day, late 50s, uh, 60s. And um, I, I, I guess it's um, enjoyable enough as those kind of bio jukebox musicals go. Uh, it's got a lot of great songs in it. Um, if you want to hear those songs, let's see. Some of the more famous ones, uh, Lucille, uh, Good Golly, Tutti Frutti, uh, Peggy Sue. Um, uh, there is a, uh, uh, believe it or not, a song by Jerome Kern <laughs> is included here because they do the platters version of smoke. Yeah. It's in your eyes. Yeah. Um, so that was nice. And it, that comes right at the end. So that made me, that made me feel good. Um, and this is directed by Randall Myler, who, who's directed similar uh, kind of bio musical shows. Um, booked by Gary Cupper, Larry Marshak, and Rose Kyola. Um, some original songs by Gary Cupper, but mostly um, the jukebox songs that we mentioned. Um, I, I think the chief downfall of this show is that the book is very, very, very clunky and cliched. Um, if they had been able to make the dialogue a little more natural and, and have, if they had been able to get the exposition exposition in, uh, in a more, um, convincing and natural way, I, I think it would have been a lot better. Uh, Constantine Maroulis plays Alan Freed and Joe Pantoliano is the other star, I would say, in, in two uh, major roles. Um, and Alan Freed, in, in case you don't know who he is, uh, he's given credit for coining the term rock and roll. Uh, so that's that's the one major reason why he's remembered. But then also for pushing um, that kind of music early on, especially um, including music by black artists when uh, in the days when quote-unquote white radio stations were refusing to play it um you know i didn't i i i I, i'm remiss i didn't do my research uh do i any of you know if if this is the fellow who uh, the show memphis was supposed to be based on i believe so I'm not yeah. 100% sure of that, but I think that's who they had in mind well whether or not that is the case uh, it is basically the same Almost exactly the same story. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so uh, with just with uh, maybe with some different songs. Um, so it's a quite a good production, I would say, at New World Stages. It seems like they spent, you know, a fair amount of money on it. Um, choreography by Stephen E. Clemens is very good. And there's certainly a lot of it. Constantine Baroulis. Uh, what's interesting here is that there are very few diegetic uh I'm, excuse me. There are very few non-diegetic songs in it, and 
I, I would say all of them or almost all of them are sung by him because Alan Freed wasn't a singer. Um, and Constantine Maroulis is. In fact, that's uh, many people would say that's his main talent. Um, so when he sings, he's not singing as if he's performing these songs on the radio or for an audience, but he's singing book songs. Um, and some of them, as I said, are new. Uh, so um that's rock and roll, man. I, I, I think it's uh, kind of average uh, in, in terms of success uh, among all of the bio and jukebox musicals. And um, my audience, again, seemed to enjoy it quite a bit. Uh, and it was uh, fairly full for a Saturday night. Uh, so if, you, if all of that sounds good to you, head up to 50th Street and check it out. All right. So, uh, Peter, what did you think of Rock and Roll Man? Um, I liked it quite a bit um, I because I went in with the expectations that I wasn't going to like it very much. <laughs> but um, And that makes a difference. It truly does. It does. Um, that said, I, I want to mention two people uh, who I thought were really very good. And I, I agree with Constantine Marulis being uh, fine. Um, a very strange wig on his head i think yeah. I, don't, I don't know if um this is what alan freed looked like i should have checked but anyway um but uh on to the performances um one is roderick covington who plays little richard and uh, if you know little richard you'd be very impressed at how well that um, he replicates him the other one one is Lawrence Standridge, and um, this is a personal thing. Um, I, I used to see him when he was a little boy performing in Newark, and I knew he was going to be wonderful. And even though he's in the ensemble and, and covers parts and has gone on a few times, which I have not seen him do, it was such a pleasure to see this uh, young man who I saw when he was maybe five, six, seven years old, stealing shows back then, that um, he has a chance to really be um, in, in an off-Broadway musical now. And I think it's going to be one of the stepping stones for him to go on so hold on to that name Lawrence Standridge um I, I I have to admit you know I'm old enough to remember this era I remember when Alan Freed was breaking through I remember um one of the reasons the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is in Cleveland is because that's where he started mm-hmm. I mean so this is not somebody who is um really to be um forgotten and one of the reasons he has been somewhat forgotten is he died at 43 um so if he had stuck around was able to stick around indeed um i think he'd be one of the great older statesmen of uh of rock and roll i i guess he'd be gone by now but still um we would have remembered him far more so in a way this is a nice tribute to a man who uh changed music which has pleased needless to say a number of people along the way i'll never forget um having lunch with richard adler the co-writer of pajama game and damn yankees one time in the 90s when he said i'm getting sick of this rock and roll and i thought well getting sick i mean i would think that by now uh you'd be (laughs) sick you know i mean because it's been 40 years you know so and um uh whoever wrote the song rock and roll is here to stay was not incorrect and um (laughs) so here it is again so uh for the baby boomer audience uh this is a nice uh stroll down nostalgia lane and um so i think it's worth seeing for that reason we should also mention that that this is a very very hard-working ensemble Mm-hmm. Um, because aside from everything else, uh, and and aside from Little Richard, whom Peter mentioned, there's lots of uh, celebrity cameos. Uh, I mean, a lot of them. The, listen to this list. Uh, at one point or on uh-huh. another, on stage, we see Chuck Berry, Dick Clark, Pat Boone, Jerry Lee, Buddy Holly, Laverne Baker, and I'm leaving out some. <laughs> and and all of those people you know are played by the ensemble and sometimes you you get the impression of somebody um running off stage changing a wig and then coming on again <laughs> as someone else in the next scene i mean it, it gets to that point so um uh if it had been done on broadway they might have had a larger cast uh and, and addressed that situation that way but as it is very 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 talented hard-working ensemble and speaking of broadway i won't be surprised if this lands on broadway uh i think there's an audience for it and um i i I wish it well well the two of you just answered my question Uh i was gonna ask if it's you know 
it with Constantine and Joey Pants and oh yeah other, yeah we haven't mentioned him have we yeah. Yeah. well I mentioned him briefly yeah, yeah he, Michael he Michael talked roles. about him you know uh, that it, it seems as though that this is really sort of trying to audition for Broadway. Uh-huh. Well, if so, it would be it would be a refreshing change from the recent trajectory, right? Where shows play on Broadway and then they go to New World stages. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. We'll see if uh, if it, if if it goes both directions. So that's Rock and Roll Man at New World stages. It's uh, scheduled through November fifth, twenty twenty three, and perhaps we'll see it on Broadway. Uh, Michael. You hmm. did you go over to the Angelica or where did you see theater camp? Oh no, I just saw it at the AMC on 42nd Street. At the AMC <laughs> on 42nd Street. So uh Michael saw Theater Camp the movie, which uh Peter talked about uh a few weeks back. So why don't you give us your thoughts on this movie? I loved it. I thought it was absolutely hilarious. Um, sometimes a little over the top in the humor, but that's okay because it, uh, just, uh, I mean, that's fine. <laughs> I don't really object to that. I, I thought it was great. Uh, obviously, some people have compared it to the movie Camp, which is about a theater camp. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are similarities there, but I would actually say it reminded me more of Waiting for Guffman and, mm-hmm. um, you know, the Christopher. Uh, yeah. Uh, guest movies uh because it's that kind of very 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 heightened reality spoofy um pseudo documentary uh depiction of what happens (laughs) at a theater camp over a particular summer and this particular theater camp is um struggling financially to put it mildly so the people involved have that to deal with on top of everything else um uh so you, you just if you go in with a major suspension of disbelief and not expecting it to be realistic i think you'll just love it and laugh as much as i did um very interestingly, uh, so the two st- – well, the stars are um, Ben Platt and Molly Gordon, who I'm not that familiar with. Uh, they play um, t- two of the major camp counselors or – is that the word for people in, in those mm-hmm. yeah. in those situations? Sure. Um, yeah. And the movie was co-written by Noah Galvin uh, and Ben Platt, who are – married in real life um and molly gordon and a fellow named nick lieberman uh there's uh wonderful small roles and cameos in this movie played by nathan lee graham uh david rush rashi r-a-s-c-h-e i think it's rash i think yeah uh priscilla lopez and amy sedaris uh so you'll have fun looking for those people and it's it's just lots of um i guess lots of in jokes but i think um most of the humor is is universal and i i think that people will enjoy it even if you're not necessarily a theater nerd but if you are a theater nerd you'll <laughs> you'll enjoy it all the more um so i'm i'm really glad i went uh uh and i i think they did a good job of you have to you walk a fine line in uh, doing a movie with that kind of a tone to it. Um, some people have said that they didn't like it because they found uh, some of the characters un- annoying and unlikable, but I didn't, uh, I didn't feel that. I just thought they were funny. <laughs> um, and I, I, I highly, highly recommend it. All right. So that is a uh, theater camp, the movie. Um and as Michael said, he saw it at the AMC, so you can kind of find it around in lots of different places. Um, it it opened a while ago, so it may not be that uh, around that much longer. So you might want to try to get to it soon if you want to see it in the theater. If not, you know, you can catch up with it on home video or streaming or whatever. So uh, Molly Gordon. Molly yes. Gordon uh, is... Uh, somebody who is uh, very popular right now from her 
television series, The Bear, which is about a uh, Chicago family eatery where she plays the love interest of the head chef. And, mm. um, and so she's very, very popular right now as the bear is, uh, is, um, very popular as well, but she's, uh, got, um, she's got a history in the theater. So, uh, it's good to see her going back and forth, uh, between the theater and this. Yeah. Well, thank right. you for that. Because as you know, I don't yeah. <laughs> really watch TV. Uh, sure. So I wouldn't. Uh, there's another guy in it. I should mention that uh, uh, who I also do not know because I guess he's primarily a comedian. Jimmy Tatro uh, oh. plays the role of Troy Rabinsky. And, and it's a really funny role because he's uh, the guy who sort of um, has to take over running this camp when his mother has a, a stroke or, or she's in the hospital for some reason and he's completely clueless he knows nothing about theater <laughs> and he can't relate to these people and he's just trying to to make it look like he knows what he's doing <laughs> um so uh he's very very enjoyable in this as well all right uh and as a follow-up for something we talked about a few weeks ago uh the cast for the spam a lot revival on broadway has been announced uh michael you want to catch our listeners up on who's going to be taking these roles well continuing uh from the dc production that excellent production which i saw are michael yuri james monroe eaglehart leslie rodriguez kritzer Jimmy Smagula. Um, and then new uh, to this production is Christopher Fitzgerald. Uh, so no more, as I mentioned, no more Alex Brightman and no more Rob McClure, because uh, both of them, I, I guess, are otherwise engaged. But um, Christopher Fitzgerald uh, needs no introduction, I'm sure, uh, to our listeners as another brilliant comedian so that's a that's a happy addition to the cast and uh will be interesting to see how this spam a lot goes over uh because i just loved it just loved it i don't i don't know uh if how it will work in terms of timing uh you know the other one the original one was quite quite a while ago um so, and also, I'm not sure. Um, I guess the big question here is how does um, Monty Python humor hold up now uh, when they when they are not uh, certainly as much in the uh, public consciousness as they were back then? Well, it's similar to Jaws, you right. know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's similar yeah. to Jaws. Ethan Slater as well. Mm, right. Mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, Ethan, Ethan Slater, Slater. Yes. Yeah. So I think that Ethan Slater is going to uh, is going to bring in a, f a few people to uh, to buy tickets on that one too. So we definitely have to mention Ethan Slater. Yeah, sorry about that. No, no, absolutely. All right. So before we uh, wrap up for today and head on to trivia and our musical moment, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, you can you automatically download it to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us on Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to listen to us. Patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Broadway Radio is a way to not only listen to us earlier than everybody else, but also get all our special bonus episodes and support Broadway Radio and what we're doing every day, 3,000 plus times over the last... Uh, X number of years since 2009 or so. Um, contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found on the show notes at broadairradio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. So, Peter, do we have an answer to last week's trivia? A song from a James Bond movie wound up in the smash off Broadway play less than a year later than the film's released. What's the movie, the song, and the off Broadway play? Well, this was uh, a tricky question, <laughs> I have to admit, because um, the Bond movie wasn't part of the actual 007 franchise. In 1967, Casino Royale was made as a parody by a different management. Burt Backrack mm -hmm. broke the very sincere The Look of Love for it, the song to which Michael and his friends danced in the second act of The Boys in the Band. 
That smash hit opened off Broadway on April 15, 1968, a mere 353 days after Casino Royale had debuted in movie theaters on April 28, 1967. Sean Logan was the first to answer, followed by Tony Janicki, Ingrid Gammerman, and Brigadude, and that was it. So, yes, this was a toughie. Um, this one's more fanciful. That doesn't mean it's not tough, but it's fanciful. You're casting a production of Follies. After many have auditioned for Buddy and have been found wanting, finally an actor comes in and is terrific. When expressing your excitement to your colleagues, <laughs> you might quote a line from a song in One Touch of Venus. What's the song and what's the line? <laughs> Okay, if you have an answer for that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So, Michael, tell us about this week's musical moment. Well, it's Mm. a tribute to Tom Jones, the great librettist and lyricist, who I I guess I've been thinking about him a lot lately, lately anyway, because we did our Jerry Orbach show at 54 Below, and we included two of his songs from the Fantastics. Um, I can see it and, of course, try to remember. Um, Tom and Harvey Schmidt uh, had a really amazing partnership uh, that also yielded, in addition to the Fantastics, it yielded 110 in the Shade and I Do, I Do on Broadway. Also, Celebration, uh, the, the first three I named were the were the hits. <laughs> um, then they also had Celebration and uh, lots of other shows that were far less successful, including one show that I really have mentioned before. I, 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 I love this show. I saw a community theater production of it on Staten Island years ago, um, and then an off-Broadway off production. I hope somebody, maybe somebody will do it um, in the near future. And that show is called Philemon. And it has really beautiful, wonderful stuff in it. And also a very, very moving, very moving story. Uh, but um, all of the obits, <laughs> or, or the, actually the only one that I've read so far, uh, the only one official obit of Tom uh, are focusing on the Fantastics, which ran for f- 42 years uh, at the Sullivan Street Playhouse and and really just became a... a f- absolute phenomenon and i guess can still be thought of as a purely theatrical phenomenon because there was a film of it mm-hmm. uh, but it was not successful um there was also an excellent tv production of a oh, yeah. condensed yeah. version of it um mm-hmm. with a really great cast susan mm-hmm. watson john davidson mm-hmm. uh bird law stanley holloway ricardo montalban yeah. Uh, and you can find that. Um, I think you can even find it in color now, uh, thanks to someone who we can't name. <laughs> on, uh, I, I think you can find it on YouTube if you look for it. So look for that. Um, uh, so our musical moments are the opener is This Plum is Too Ripe from the Fantastics. And the closer is Melisande from mm. 110 in the shade which uh, as i again I was, as i've said before i think that show has two things ag- against it the the plot is quite similar to the music man which came before and also um you have to make it ra- you have to make it rain on stage at the end of the show and if you don't i think uh, you just shouldn't probably do it because it's so overwhelming when that happens i don't think you can just do it with an effect a sound effect and, and a lighting effect um but it's a great wonderful beautiful musical adaptation of the rainmaker and i think melisande is one of the best songs in it as sung by starbuck to Lizzie. And here's an interesting thing I, that I just recently learned uh, was that Jerry Orbach was up for the role of Starbuck in 110 in the Shade, mm-hmm. uh, having previously worked with Jones and Schmidt, obviously. Mm-hmm. And and here uh, here is an interesting thing. Um, the role went to Robert Horton, who was a TV star at the time. And apparently many people were very unhappy about that, including Tom Jones. Um, and I think Tar- Harvey Schmidt. I, I'm, I don't remember a specific quote from him about it. But uh, uh, may I? Yes, may please. I say why that happened. Yes. Um, Hal Holbrook was signed to play the lead. 
Oh, right. Yes. Yes. I've talked, I talked to Hal Holbrook about this. Um, he was signed to play the lead. And the thing was that Robert Horton was supposed to be in the musical. I picked a Daisy by Richard Rogers and Ellen J. Lerner, uh, which fell apart. Lerner would continue the project and it would become on a clear day. You can see forever, which is why I picked a Daisy. You may know Daisy Gamble is the um, lead in that show. Merrick always hated Rogers and Hammerstein because he wanted them to write uh, Fanny for him. And uh, they wouldn't because he was the producer. <laughs> they were their own producers at that mm-hmm. point. Always hated them. So as a result, he wanted to get Robert Horton to, to irk Richard Rogers. Right. And so right. as a result, um, he hired him for 110 The Shade. Well, Hal Holbrook said, and his agent said, we have a contract with you. And um, and made David Merrick said, I'm honoring the contract. Absolutely. Robert Horton can be in the show. Yes, he can. He'll be very good in the ensemble. Because in those days, there was no specific mention on contracts of what part you would play. Can you imagine? I know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Hal Hopper told me that changed as a result of this, that, um, that he, um, that now uh, after that you had to specify in the contract, what role the actor was being hired for. So, um, so that's why Jones and Schmidt weren't happy because they really did expect Hal Holbrook was going to do it. And they felt he got a dirty deal, which he did. Well, I don't know at what point. Uh, so, if Jerry was considered before, or yeah, I never heard of, that either. By the way, this I, I read what you read, so I had never heard it either. Yeah, but but the interesting thing there is that um, the one negative thing I've ever read Jerry Orbach say about anyone <laughs> was apparently in in relation to that because he said something like, "Well, there's these roles that you, you really want and you think you'd be good for, and then some TV person comes in and takes them, and they're not very." Mm-hmm. very good but mm-hmm. um my question to you on that peter is and i show you just i forget did you see 110 in the shade yes indeed um and, well, how was he because he sounds fine fine on the album it was terrific oh okay yeah he really was and by the way i saw it late in the run um it, it uh, opened in october i saw it in june um the following year and um it was a matinee and he wasn't walking through it at all um, well maybe then it was partly just people being um being hoity-toity about TV stars. Yes, I think that is something to be said about that. And what's really ironic is that Robert Houghton never appeared on Broadway again, which might support the idea that he wasn't very good. But he did a million things in stock. Hmm. I mean, he really liked the theater. Uh, and uh, it, it was really something how he never came back to Broadway. And I would think that somebody would be interested in him because the TV series you're alluding to is called Wagon Train. And it was amazingly popular. And in mm-hmm. some seasons, it was number one. So people knew who he was. Well, maybe he knew that people were bad mouthing him, and he didn't like the fact that the people were bad mouthing him because he was a TV star. <laughs> well, I didn't I didn't like living in New York? Who knows? Yeah. Anyway, um, so our closer is the incredible, wonderful song "Melisande," as beautifully performed by Robert Horton from One Ten in the Shade. So, on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to this week on Broadway. Bye bye. Bye. Now once upon a time, so they tell us, somewhere beneath the mountains of Mexico, there dwelt a royal fella, King Hamlet, who had a turtle dove and he loved her so. Her name was Melisande, and I tell you, that lady was as pretty as she could be. But Melisande was bothered, so Hamlet starts to plead, tell me what you need. And Melisande whispers, I've got me a dream. I've always wanted a golden fleece And I think I will die Unless it is mine Great God Almighty, says Hamlet, I sympathize Great God Almighty, you take and you dry your eyes I'm gonna get you whatever you ask of me I'm gonna get you the goldenest fleece in the world So he gets a bunch of fellas together And out into the ocean away they go And after they have traveled for ages They come upon the place where the ogres grow And sure enough they spy on the giant Sitting there a garden, this golden fleece And Hamlet says, I warn you, you best give that to me Do it peaceably, my Melisande needs it She's got her a dream 
She's always wanted a golden fleece And I'm ready to die For that piece of twine Great God Almighty The giant he raves and swears Great God Almighty You better go say your prayers I'm gonna slice you And put you into the stew I'm gonna cook you And both of them started to fight When he came back, all bleeding and torn, he went and he laid that fleece of gold right down at her pretty white feet. And she took that fur piece and she wrapped it around her pink, naked shoulders. And she said, I had me a dream. I always wanted a golden fleece And now that it is mine I'll never be What a name! 